Welcome to When It's Falling Apart, the student podcast for conversations about falling apart and putting ourselves back together. Today's identity episode is with Siddharth Balachandran. Sid is the principal solicitor and co-founder of the Deakin Law Clinic and in 2018 was awarded the Deakin University Vice-Chancellor's Award for Outstanding Contributions to Experience alongside colleagues. Prior to joining Deakin, Sid was a lawyer with International Social Service Australia, assisting left-behind parents seeking the return of children under the 1980 Hague Convention of International Child Abduction. Our chat today explores Sid's journey through life and challenges that have arisen for him when conflating who you are with where you live. Just a heads up, When It's Falling Apart podcast contains discussions around mental health as it exists to increase education and transparency around these matters. If you or someone you know needs support, we recommend contacting Beyond Blue or Lifeline, details for which are in the show notes. Alrighty, let's get chatting. Sid, welcome to When It's Falling Apart. Thank you so much for coming in today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm very, very excited for this conversation. I hope I can contribute in some way. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. But first, we're going to start with some more general things. So I want to ask you, what are a couple of things about you that aren't what you do? Oh, oh, this is a great question. Many people know who know me. uh, I love my cars. Cars are really important to me, not for anything other than as a kid, I've just had an obsession with it. I completely love cars. I could recognize every single car on the road by the time I was like four. Wow. Yeah. And then it expanded to different cities and countries and Wow. And then, uh, so I'm always obsessed with it. Can you tell me about a time recently when Mm. things fell apart a little bit for you? It's an interesting phrase, falling apart, isn't it? Because you, I think everyone has their own definition of it. There's been instances where I think, especially in light of a post-COVID world, people, including myself, oh my God, what the hell, what's the purpose of life? What's the meaning? Am I happy where I am? What, what, am, I, what am I doing? From a more falling apart perspective, I think there were times, there, there was, there's a couple of incidences where I felt I was going to, um, I, I didn't have the physical strength to do my job. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, you know, when stress comes into mm. part and then uh, with my history of um, health issues, I think that stress is the key thing that really destroys you um and uh, i got to a point where i suffered from panic attacks and it was really hard to overcome that um and i never had a panic attack before in my life wow yeah uh, so you know at the ripe old age of i think it was 34 35 i had my first panic attack wow so i think that would be one where in that moment i felt my world was falling apart yeah um the good news on that one is that i think i'm doing better now Good. Well, we're very glad to hear it. (laughs) And I think that's the main point of it is that we all go through things that Mm. feel like our worlds are just falling apart. And if we acknowledge it, then maybe that'll make it a little bit easier to to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Mm -hmm. All right. So today I want to talk to you about identity and what makes you who you are, because you've got quite an interesting story and I'm really excited (laughs) to, you don't think it's interesting because it's your story, but I'm really excited to share it with everybody because I think there will be lots of parts that people resonate with um, and not knowing who you are and and having things ripped out from underneath you and then finding your feet again. Um, Yeah, that's, that's, uh, you know, identity is an important thing. I think there are, I, I will say, start off by saying there are a lot more intelligent people. We can talk a lot more about what identity and 
what the you know the the um the philosophies behind it but i will do my best to share my story and see if it helps anyone out there all right so when we talked about this briefly mm. you started right back from when you were born you said meg i'm going to sit you down i'm going to tell you about <laughs> me and i'm going to go way back and tell you about when i was born yeah. so can we start there oh gosh all right so yeah i was born in uh, melbourne uh in east melbourne in 1984 in september mm-hmm. and i am uh, the son of South Indian parents who migrated to Australia in 1983. Prior to that, my parents were residing in Bahrain for a number of years before uh, deciding to try and have a family and Australia was their best option and uh, Melbourne was the city they chose. So I was fortunate enough to be born in Melbourne. And um, one of the biggest challenges and to this day is what being a, a child of migrant parents in a country which really has in many ways a strong sense of identity and when you're not perhaps part of that identity. And there are, you know, growing up here was fantastic in many ways. You know, there were instances where you get racially abused um, because you stood out. Now, I, by, my, by all means, wasn't the only one to stand out. Uh, I remember um, in primary school, and I didn't think of at the time at all, but in year one, uh, there was a friend of mine in, uh, at the time, and uh, his name was Hussein, and my name is Siddhar. Um, but the kids started to call me Saddam because this was 1991. This was the first Gulf War. Nice. And they called me Saddam and called my friend Hussein referred to us as Saddam Hussein, which is something that, that stands out. Yeah. I, I, I must admit at the time, I didn't think much of it, um, but that's clearly not acceptable. No. Um, there are other times where, you know, kids would call me a black piece of shit or your curry muncher. Uh, uh, and to give you context, you know, my favourite, one of my favourite foods in the world is a sandwich with Vegemite and cheese or Vegemite <laughs> and butter. And I, you know, it didn't stop people from no. Having a go at me. And then it, look, it, 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 for a long time it stopped, you know, but you had to, it was this fine line. When were you Indian and when were you Australian? Right. Um, and in, the, in my parents encouraged my sister and I and my, my cousins as well to um, engage in cultural practice. And at the time, I remember also then trying to walk this fine line of, all right, I'm doing all of these things, but I still wanted to play footy mm. on Saturday and Sunday during winter. I still wanted to play play cricket and uh, unfortunately for me I never learned my mother tongue right yeah and it's one of the probably the biggest regret I have uh, but even that, even without learning mother tongue, I still had identity issues. When was it? When were you Australian and when were you Indian? I think uh, for a lot of people, and again, a lot of people who are migrants, um, it's not that dissimilar a story. Um, that struggle to work out who you are, and even if you're not a migrant, it's still a struggle to work out who you are. Uh, so by the time I was we uh, relocated overseas, um, I was in a decent place where I th- I thought, okay. I, I knew who I am, but probably you didn't have to go too beyond the surface to say, well, I, I'm still not sure. And that got exasperated in, um, when uh, I moved abroad to the Middle East, to Qatar. And identity always, you know, being being a brown person, is, um, it comes back often to race. Um, 
And these kids are having a go at me uh, to the point that whilst I suffered some racist abuse as a kid growing up in Melbourne, the types of stuff that coming out of their mouths was horrific. I, I thought I wouldn't survive. I had my 14th birthday and I felt so lonely. I felt there were times where I wanted to wanted to do something that I would have regretted, which was harming myself because it took such a toll. Yeah. You know, and so you've got to, well, not you've got to, but for me it was the challenge was, well, how do I deal with this? Yeah. How do I find myself in all of this? It's still something that affects me. Yeah. Um, it's still something that hurts because anyone who suffered from racist abuse knows that it's not that just that incident. It lasts. Yeah. You can never shed it. And quite frankly, maybe we shouldn't shed it, but it's, it is there and it hurts. And so getting back to it, I guess for me to cope with it was, well, I need to work out who I am. It actually, you know, odd way. It started, I don't know whether my parents and particularly my father was aware of this, but he started to explain our faith more, started to have philosophical conversations, and it was my coping mechanism. Plus, I decided, well, I had to be good at something um, and I'm not good at anything. But I thought oh, that's that not time, true. No, no, at the time, I, 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 and there's a significant part of me to this day that's very competitive. So yeah. um, I wanted to, so the, the means to do that was actually ironically in sport. And, um, yeah, so I think it helped. I gained more confidence by doing better at sport. And then I got to know more people and I think part of the, the um, part of the issue was once you know people and they see you for as being a human being it's often it's remarkable what happens at that yeah. point and then you get to actually enjoy their company before you know it you've tried to be you, you can be friends with people or similar people who, who may have had these views mm. uh, and you know but in high school like most of most most listeners would potentially know it's about it's survival yeah it's it's what not an easy. Yeah, yeah. You have to survive and you have to make do. And again, this wasn't a resolved issue at the age of 15. Or this was up and down, up and down. Mm. And an example of this was, you know, in, as I said, I loved playing cricket at the time. The reason I really focused on cricket as opposed to AFL was because I, for some ridiculous reason, thought I had skill in cricket. Right. Whereas in AFL, I knew I had no <laughs> skill. I enjoyed playing footy more. It was by far the more enjoyable. Yeah. But on cricket, I felt I had talent. Okay. So at the end of year eight, you know, we, we formed a cricket team. Right. We actually formed a cricket team. And um, cool. Oh, just like a where we played cricket, uh, and it was around the 1999 World Cup. And, um, again, identity comes when you have friends who are, of, say, in this case, Pakistani origin, and there's a war happening in Kashmir mm. between India and Pakistan. Right. And then you're like, does this mean we can't be friends? Does this, yeah. like, you, you, uh, you know, does cricket take a more significant meaning because you want to win? You want to beat these guys to say, you know, victory to India or whatever you might want to call it? Yeah. Um, you have that that comes into it. To cut a really long story short, by the time I was 18, on, on towards finishing high school at Qatar, I somehow agreed to do Bollywood dancing with two other guys cool. in the high school and do high school dance. And I'm a terrible dancer. Right. Uh, Within the high school, so run by the high school or? We did it. We just did performances for, that for the students. high schools. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, we did that. Yeah. And wearing, you know, um, subcontinental attire. And I loved it. But it was the pride and the fact that okay, I can be comfortable with being Indian. Yeah. Instead of it being used as a mocking, it's like, no, I'm, I am Indian. Mm-hmm. But I'm also many other things. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so there was a there was that moment moments of happiness and joy there. Yeah. But again, unfortunately, this theme about your identity being challenged wasn't just stopped at the end of high school. Yeah. Um, you know, in high school, I wanted to be a, a doctor. Um, in in senior year, in year twelve, it's I started to change. Right. I be the first one to admit that. I was afraid of succeeding in medicine, despite getting into good schools and good universities. I probably had my first bout of fear, right. uh, like ongoing fear. So I decided not to pursue that. But then I'm deciding what to do with my life. And so you got into medicine. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the American system, it's pre-medicine. So you've Okay. You technically, just like in Australia, your medicine degree is your, your master's degree. But unlike in Australia where you sort of have, you get into medicine from 18, you, mm. get, you sort of do their pre-med course and on the price you do that well, you get into medicine. Yeah. So, yeah, I got into a, a, a few programs mm-hmm. of that. Uh, I had pretty good universities. And then all of a sudden you have to tell your family, mum mm-hmm. especially, uh, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I want to be a doctor. And I wrote a cover letter explaining to these universities I wanted to help children. Right. Yeah. And that I saw myself working at Medicine Sans Frontier um, or Doctors Without Borders. And uh, because I, I, I understood clearly that I was from a privileged background. Yeah. Uh, even then, that was self-obvious, self-evident. So to all of a sudden say to your biggest supporter, my mum was definitely my biggest supporter, I actually don't want to do that. That was the challenge. Yeah. uh, Did that challenge who she thought you were as well? Yeah, yeah. I think year 12 generally challenged what my parents thought about who I was. Yeah. Um, You know, for my 18th birthday, my friends and I decided to, and this is in Qatar, which is still a conservative country. You can't go out and have drinks with mates generally. You just couldn't. That didn't stop us. Right, obviously. No, (laughs) no. um, But... It was an incident for my 18th birthday. Um, I got hammered. I can't remember. <laughs> I, I actually genuinely, genuinely can't remember incidences past a certain hour. It was the first time in my life I'd been smashed. smashed. And my best mate um, brought me home. Yeah. And my mum and dad, apparently I stepped on one of the cats. Oh, no. The screamed and my mum woke up and she thought I was dead or, you know, and um, I almost got away with it too. I I know, I know, exactly. For my own stupidity. Um, (laughs) There's a common theme here. Yeah. Yeah, so waking up the next day and not remembering it and having to talk with your parents. Mm. So what did you do last night? Ah, nothing, nothing. <laughs> um, and then, you know, you realise, oh, shit, that's not good. You know, like a lot of teenagers, we, you're trying to work out who you are. Mm. But you read books on it and you're saying, all right, you, your adolescence goes from this age to this age. And it's just not true. Uh, it's just not true. And I've find it extraordinary even to this day and um, with parents or students uh, or potential students um, and the whole ATAR system it's like wow you make choices that affect your entire life based on a, a standardized test almost yeah and I know that and I, I always remember being that age of 18 and not knowing what my future held for me right um, which is more common than we realize it is completely i think so and it's a it's a healthy conversation to have i i think it'd be really scary if you knew at 18 what you wanted to do for the rest of your life mm. um 
It's a long rest of the road. Yeah, and don't get me wrong. Like, as a kid, I wanted to be a Formula One driver. I mean, cool. Yeah, I my first hero was a Brazilian driver, Ayrton Senna. Mm-hmm. Um, and, however, when he passed away in 1994, you know, that, that dream sort of ended in many ways for me because probably my first real hero mm-hmm. and you know, losing someone that you cared about so deeply at a young age was at the time and to this day still traumatic and yet so uh you know but again as for a lot of people from the subcontinent your your parents think all right look you do medicine you do accounting you do law you do engineering Mm-hmm. make yourself successful right? Um, in those defined categories. And at the time of 18, 19, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Mm. So you have these also pressures of who you are, what it is you want to be, how do we know? And quite frankly, at least my experience, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I feel for people out there who get to a certain point and they feel like they're being told what to do, mm. but they themselves not sure if they really want to do it or not. Mm. It's a challenge. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And for my parents, facing that was a challenge for them. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And so you got through that with them? Or do you think it's something that is still? Uh, no, I think eventually, eventually you did. I did in the sense of I was lucky enough to go to Germany. Thanks to my, again, all, all down to my parents. They supported me to do that. I had this fascination with Germany since I was a kid. And I think they just, my parents really wanted me to be happy. Yeah. And I think they didn't, perhaps their fear was they didn't know how. Right. Yeah. You know, they gave me so many opportunities and so many, taught me so many wonderful lessons. You know, they had high standards too. So finding, going to Germany and then pursuing something you have deep passion, which for me was to learn German. And that's another situation. I mean, traveling on your own to different countries. It started in the United States with summer school and then Germany and then Switzerland. Subsequently, you realize again, your identity is being questioned. Yeah. And this is all post. 9-11. So being in the States, being questioned by immigration control because you have some Arabic writing on your passport. And I wasn't dying. I was traveling from Qatar, but yeah, always being picked out. Yeah. Even though you were born in Melbourne, Australia. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter to people. That's what you learn. You know, it's just a label. Mm. And in Germany, there was an incident where coming home, walking home after a good night out, uh, (laughs) had a few to drink, but I was, I learned my lesson from the previous year of not getting yeah. smashed. Uh, smashed or shit faced or whatever the terminology <laughs> is these days. Um, uh, walking home, and uh, this is a small town. Town was about 40,000, 50,000 people. And I had really, and I still hold this town very highly and dear to my heart. And the town is a Schwäbisch Hall, for those of you who know with German geography, near Stuttgart. And I was walking home from the pub. And when I was walking, I was walking on the left. I see these lights going on and off in a in an apartment building or some kind. And all of a sudden, these cop cars come from nowhere, you know. And they just sort of, if I'm walking down here, cop car sort of cuts right in front of me. I'm like, okay. I'm just walking home. I saw something maybe happening. Police officer got out of the car and started to question me. All right. Slightly, slightly drunk in a language I didn't think I was particularly fluent in at the time, asking me all these questions. Uh, I handled myself all right in German. Um, yeah. I wasn't arrested, which is good. Uh, the goal. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good start. But yeah, these cops will. Uh, and it took someone from, I think, one of the apartment blocks said, Why are you talking to him? The incident's here. I was just grateful I had my student card. But weirdly, the student ID card didn't have 
a, a photo. Oh. Yeah. So I'm like, right. but I told the cops in Germany, look, you can come with me. I can show you my details. And that's when this person just is yelled out, what are you doing with him? What are you doing? Not the issue. And it's completely out of your control. Completely. Completely. You could have done everything right. Yeah. And the external circumstances still tell you who you are. Yeah. And again, I, that happened a lot. It happened to me in Switzerland. It happened to me uh, in the States. Um yeah, you know, and again, they, they've clearly judged me on how I look. Yeah. They've clearly done that. Absolutely. And it, it hurts. Yeah. It hurts. And there was this period where pretty much from, I think, 2002 to about 2010, at least well, twice a year, I'd be stopped. No. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that's got to play into what you then tell yourself. Of course it does. It absolutely does. Yeah. Because, you know, I've been lucky enough to live abroad in so many different countries. Yeah. Try and feel, okay, make this concept of home at least a temporary uh, concept of home. And just when you feel comfortable, something happens. You know, in, in uh, my first year of university in uh, Switzerland, I was, I, I was woken up uh, by a friend of mine who's panicked and said, we need to take so-and-so to the uh, train stations. Right. And I'm like, all right, okay. We'll go, we'll go. Um, I didn't even have time to put shoes on. Right. Uh, oh, she'd forgotten her passport. That's, I think, what it was. Yeah, that's right. She, this person who was forgotten her passport, she was going um, overseas. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got a passport and I told my friend, look, I'll get out of the car. I'll try and run out and deliver it to her at the platform. Yeah. Running, black tracksuit pants, a Guinness black t-shirt yeah please say in um, Italian stop and I'm like okay this is Switzerland I'm expecting all police officers to be at least bilingual if not trilingual mm-hmm. and at that stage I was yeah, this wasn't my first interaction with law enforcement so I went yeah. back to German and yes. <laughs> spoke in German and they had no idea what I was saying oh. they just said no no they didn't my friend who was with me in the car had ended up parking coming seeing this this thing grabbing the passport and the papers, giving it to a friend, coming back. It wasn't for her. I don't think I'd be able to get out of that because they couldn't understand why I was running with bare feet. That judgment. Yeah, right. it's hurtful. There's, there's no doubt about it. It's it's, uh, it's something that we get to this question of identity again. Mm. And you realise, it doesn't matter how you identify yourself. People are going to look at you differently and judge you differently. Like I said, I'm not going to bore everyone with other stories. Okay? <laughs> but this, this was a trend. Yeah, a pattern. And a pattern. And, and what I will say is when I returned back to Melbourne, you got it all the time. Where are you really from? And I'm sure your listeners will know that. Um, where are you really from? What, and I don't have a problem. I mean... But if I was white, mm. I don't think I'd get that question. Mm. I just don't. And I think Australia has a lot to learn when it comes to accepting people from different backgrounds. We as an Australian society need to facilitate that. But it also needs to be set an example by our various leaders, whether it's federal, whether it's state. Mm. And this is not depending on this is not dependent on political divide, in my view. This is just something that we've got to understand this journey better. Yeah. You know, to be more inclusive, to be more respectful. Mm. 
And we see it in today, and there are so many more intelligent people who can talk about this than I can, but <laughs> and have. Um, and it's really affirming to see. You're still seeing examples of people being judged in an Australian context. But now you're talking, I mean, gender, but race as well. Yeah. Um, you look at deaths of Aboriginal people in custody, police custody. Yeah. Still a problem. You talk about the media depictions of uh, women and women of colour and people not understanding the difference between free speech and respect for other people. Yeah. And that's huge. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's a tremendously uh, complex area, but it all starts from this, I think, idea of being inclusive as opposed to being exclusive. Unfortunately, I think Australia's multicultural policies have not been the best when it comes to that. Um, There was a period of time where I think there was a lot of hope for it and that got unfortunately eroded and I think the you know this concept of Australia you know you're lucky to be born here you're lucky to be Australian you have to be grateful to be Australian is often the concept that overrides actually people's experiences of being in Australia and the, the, the concepts of race and gender here and for a lot of people the combination of both yeah and uh, uh, again those feelings of being isolated alone the inability of ones to share it with other people um, yeah there was a long time long time and even to this day there's certain times where I still feel it yeah 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 but I will say that I think at least in um, I feel this year I mean 2021 is a lot better than what it was in 2009 yeah I think so but there's still a lot to work on to work on Yeah. yeah on a more positive note Never did I think in my life that I would go to various one-day international or T20 games where India is involved against Australia mm-hmm. or against South Africa. Uh-huh. And you have a stadium like the MCG where there might be 70,000 people and 50,000, 60,000 are Indian fans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so I'm in India. After India won the uh, Test Series against Australia earlier this year, um, I had the confidence of wearing my India jersey. Right. This year. Yeah. Yeah. And I never thought that would be possible because of my experiences previously. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So you're still getting to that point where yep. you're having moments yep. where you're realising who you are is okay. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. All the time. Are the main things that you hold on to on that, that journey, so from when you were studying and, and in Europe to now, are there a couple of things that to help you guide, to help guide who you are? My parents taught me the importance of being kind. I think kindness is an understated. And for me, that's the, the one value I try to hold dear. Trying to be kind to people, kind to animals, kind to your environment, being respectful. And that's often a challenge. Of course it is. Especially when you've been treated so adversely by people. Again, I think I'm still privileged. Okay. I don't, there are people in society who are way, treated way worse than me and for uh, for no reasons that they can control. So I don't want, I don't want people to think that I've had a, an extraordinarily difficult childhood because I don't think I have. Having said that, I've had incidences where it's had an impact on me. And I think very clearly, it's very easy to start viewing other people with disdain because they're different or because you have yourself been a 
victim. And so the challenge for me is to, again, not be judgmental of people. But that leads into you being kind and respectful to others. So that would be the one guiding principle. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't matter what you achieve academically. It doesn't matter what you achieve professionally. Uh, for me, it was just trying to be kind to people. If I can be kind, caring, considerate, and still have some humility and about it, then I'm hopeful that I can get through. Yeah. 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 I'm just amazed by your vulnerability. So thank you so much for sharing all that today. Oh, no, my, my um, absolute pleasure. I mean, it's 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 always there. I, I think, again, if you take it to uh, where I am right now, never did I think I'd be in the role that I am. Um, never did I think I'd be given the opportunity, at least at this stage of my career. So that's why I can think, okay, we have made some progress, which is really great. I think, for example, and uh, the person who I contributed a lot of me finding comfort in my identity is uh, my wife. Um, She allowed me to rekindle my love for India, um, rejuvenate that because for a long time I, I lost it. And then I think I lost it because of these experiences I had, yeah. amongst other reasons. But, but yeah, this was to allow myself to be comfortable with being Indian. But I still only have one passport. Right. Uh, I only have one citizenship to one country. Yes. Someone with a coat of arms with a kangaroo in an email. So, uh, <laughs> sounds familiar. Yeah, it sounds familiar. Um, depends how global this podcast becomes, right? So, uh, <laughs> Um, but the reality is, you know, I'm Australian citizen by default. Identity being being using that to define define who I am is, I think, limited, and, and I don't want to depend on such labels to define who I am as a human being. Amazing. That's the way I try and approach. Well, I find you incredibly inspiring. So thank you so much for sharing your story, even though you don't think it's anything special. I do, and I think that. Um, there are there are many people that are going to be touched by by what you said today. So no, thank you, thank you, Meg, for giving me the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of When It's Falling Apart podcast. To keep up to date, don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts for new episodes every Friday and make sure you follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. These links are in your show notes. If this episode has triggered anything for you around mental health, I recommend reaching out to Beyond Blue by calling 1300 22 46 36 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. When It's Falling Apart is produced by Behind the Grand Media and Meg Reid. 